trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies, they're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, all right, let's get this thing underway. Welcome to the show. Our program is brought to you each day at this time by great sponsors like Jeff Staples Real Estate, also the Staples-Turner team at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage, and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. And it's also brought to you by great listeners like yourself who... Uh, find it within their hearts and within their wallets to uh, become a patron of the Brian Hyde Show. You can find a way to do that just at the bottom of the show notes. Click on the uh, subscribe link and uh, you can, uh, you know, donate five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, whatever you can. I certainly appreciate it and I thank you for helping me do what I do. So, I'm going to confess right up front. I didn't watch the debate last night. I know. It was exciting. It was just a few miles away. It was just in Salt Lake City, just north of me. I didn't, uh, how can I put this? I think it was Robert Higgs. The economist who described it as, ah, shouting nincompoops. Now, I think it was a better debate from what I have seen from others who were tweeting about it or reporting on social media that uh, it didn't have quite the, uh, well, World Wrestling, World Federation of Wrestling, you know, feel to it that the presidential debate had. But I still don't, uh, I don't see what it accomplishes a lot, you know, in, in terms of, you know, it gets the teams riled up. It's like a pep rally. But I don't think it, it really sways voters very much. It, you know, just kind of cements everybody in their uh, their particular take. Yes, Kamala Harris was was exactly what we needed. And no, 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 Mike Pence was so incredible. And everybody came away believing what they already believed, albeit just a little bit stronger. And frankly, I just, I didn't have time for that. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't have had a good time. If you had a good time watching it, that's great. But when it comes to politicians... Doing what politicians do, which is usually arguing over minutia, you know, strategically trying to, to play gotcha with their opponents, lying to you. Yes, politicians do that. And, and when people complain about this, well, I can't believe this politician was, was you know, obfuscating or, you know, just, just flat out gaslighting us by telling us untruths. I think to myself, that's kind of like complaining, you know, that porn star showing an awful lot of skin. This is what politicians do. They, they are there to say whatever it takes in order to get elected, and once elected, to do whatever it takes to stay in power, to keep the money flowing, to keep their campaign funded so that they can maintain their control on power. I mean, why else do politicians find themselves there for decades? They go in with a relatively modest net worth and come out millionaires many times over. Have they produced something of value? Compared to their counterparts in the private sector, the entrepreneurs who've actually come up with some way of, of making your life better or solving problems for you, generally the answer is no. In fact, if anything, the politicians have created complications for those who want to get out there and be innovative and be entrepreneurial. They've laid heavy tax burdens on their backs. They, they help themselves to what the productive sectors of society are doing. They take that money and redistribute it to their political cronies. And, you know, they counter this, look at what I've done. I brought home the bacon. So, no, I don't, uh, I don't get excited over that. 
and, and the reassurance ritual that we will be engaging in in about uh, three and a half weeks from now, not, uh, I'm not convinced that it's going to change a whole lot. But then again, I've, I've been paying attention. I've been watching what politicians do for quite some time. And once in a great while, you'll find a principled statesman or stateswoman who has the courage to stand up and say, hey, we shouldn't even be doing this in the first place, rather than arguing over to what degree should we do this. There's a lot of systemic rot. And so that's why I don't get as excited over politics as some do. And I know I'm on a bit of a rant right now, but um, I got to tell you, I'm concerned. And I mean, I'm legitimately and sincerely concerned for my friends who, who consume this stuff and just dwell on it day and night. I have a really beloved high school teacher, and I mean, this guy was, was instrumental in, in helping me become who I am today. I know some of you are like, oh, so now we know who to blame. <laughs> okay, well, no, he was, he was a great teacher in the sense that he believed in me at a time when I didn't know what to believe about myself. And because of that, because of his mentoring and his support, um, he, he helped put me on a path that I found a lot of enjoyment and a lot of fulfillment in. And I hope I've done some good with, with some of the skills I've learned. And I, I stay in touch with him on Facebook. I see him, you know, I see him getting older. I see his health, you know, failing. But the thing that makes me the saddest is he is consumed. Every moment of every day, this man is just consumed with Donald Trump. And I'm not trying to make out that, you know, Trump is one of the saints who walks among us. And I, I, I'm not trying to minimize his faults or, or overstate, you know, whatever good things he's done. I just think it's really unhealthy to spend that much time dwelling on someone who, who really doesn't have that direct influence on your life. Or in this case, has exactly as much influence as you are willing to allow by, by letting them live rent-free in your head. And frankly, I've got a lot of friends on the political right who feel this way about Nancy Pelosi or Kamala Harris or some other political figure. To me, that is giving politicians a stature that they don't deserve. You know, they take opinion polls every so often about who are the most trustworthy people, you know, in in our society. Doctors, pharmacists, you know, um, clergy typically rank pretty high up there on the trustworthiness scale. Um, Ambulance-chasing lawyers, (laughs) used car salesmen, politicians usually make the very bottom of the list. And yet when it comes to politicians, people get starstruck or people get, you know, uh, all all misty-eyed. As if this is a person who is so important and oh, everything they do, and they gush when they get in the presence of it. It's like they they get this contact high from, from being in the presence. And I mean, you've seen the pictures. I'm sure you've seen the pictures of people just freaking out. <gasps> he touched me. He shook my hand. And I'm, you know, I'm not talking he touched me in a, in a Joe Biden way. He just, you know, I touched the hem of his garment. It was so amazing. I don't share that enthusiasm for them. And, and I'm not telling you, you have to feel the same way I do. I've just come to the realization that really, for the most part, they are people who will say anything and do anything to maintain power. And when you look at it from that vantage point, I get it. It it sounds cynical and it sounds pretty jaded. But it also allows you to see just how amoral the political process is. And it also helps explain why it's, it's so easy for a politician to lie to us. They would rather lie to your face 
than, you know, burp or pass gas in public. You know, that would be terrible. I can't, can't imagine something like that. They lie to you, though. They deceive you. They take advantage of you. And that's the part I just can't get behind. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush. My rant is now over. Let's move on with the show. So the reign of terror may be over in Michigan. I don't know if you've been following this story, but this has been extremely interesting to me. Governor Gretchen Whitmer has just, well, she has acted like she is a legislator. Oh, yes, you know what I say goes. And she has uh, she has been one of the strictest, most dictatorial executives throughout the states in the, the wake of the uh, COVID pandemic. Some of the things that she was doing, banning people from buying garden seeds and so forth, you just have to wonder, what was that all about? Well, apparently, last week, the Supreme Court of Michigan, the state's highest and final court, invalidated Governor Gretchen Whitman's executive orders, as well as the statute on which she based those orders. Judge Andrew Napolitano wrote about this. This is published on lewrockwell.com. He starts with a quote from Justice George Sutherland. That'll be a familiar name to my listeners in Utah. The quote says, If the provisions of the Constitution be not upheld when they pinch, as well as when they comfort, they may as well be abandoned. And Judge Napolitano talks about how the, the court, the Supreme Court of Michigan, invalidating Governor Whitmer's pandemic executive orders and the statute on which she based those orders, he says that opinion was a sweeping victory for personal liberty in a free society. And it was exceptionally gratifying for those of us who believe that the U.S. and state constitutions mean what they say. Governor Whitmer's orders were the most draconian in the, in the Union, and numerous efforts to dislodge them in state courts had failed until three primary care physicians sued the governor in federal court in Michigan. The federal judge to whom the case was assigned certified questions of law to the Michigan Supreme Court. Now, that's a rarely used procedure that federal judges employ when they need to know how a state court of last resort will rule on a question of state law. Now, we got to take a break, but we're going to come back to this in a few moments and, and share some more of Judge Napolitano's take on this. He gives us the backstory and explains why this is a good thing. Clipping the executive's wings. It's something I wish would happen in my home state of Utah and sooner rather than later. Let's hope this is the beginning of a trend. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing with you a commentary from Judge Andrew Napolitano, published on LewRockwell.com earlier today, about Judge Gretchen, or not Judge, Governor Gretchen Whitmer being... Um, smacked down finally by the Michigan State Supreme Court. If you remember, uh, she kind of made herself a one-woman government when she purported to write the laws during the early days of the pandemic and to enforce them. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Going back to the judge's explanation of why the uh, the court in, uh, in Michigan, or actually a federal judge ordered the court in Michigan to certify questions of law 
He says uh, that's that's a procedure federal judges use when they need to know how a state court of last resort will rule on a question of state law. And here's the background. Under our federal system, the state court of last resort, not the U.S. Supreme Court, has the final say on the meaning of a state's constitution and the laws written pursuant to it. That makes sense, right? The Michigan Supreme Court accepted the certification, meaning it agreed to inform the federal judge what the relevant clauses of the Michigan Constitution mean and whether the statute on which the governor relied is constitutional. And in so doing, it ruled that the Michigan statute in question was unconstitutional. Therefore, the governor's executive orders are void. So if you remember, Governor Gretchen Whitmer put a staggering series of executive orders into effect in April and May. And among those other orders, she required residents to stay home unless their travel was immediately necessary to preserve human life. She required them to wear face masks at all indoor and outdoor public places and to stay six feet from all other people outside the home. She closed all restaurants, food courts, cafes, coffee houses, bars, taverns, brew pubs, breweries, distilleries, wineries, tasting rooms, clubs, hookah bars, cigar bars, vaping lounges, barber shops, hair salons, nail salons, tanning salons, tattoo parlors, schools, churches, theaters, cinemas, libraries, museums, gymnasiums, fitness centers, public swimming pools, recreation centers, indoor sports facilities, indoor exercise facilities, spas, casinos, and racetracks. Now, she also closed arcades, bingo halls, bowling alleys, indoor climbing facilities, skating rinks, and trampoline parks. She closed all places of employment not immediately necessary to sustain human life. She banned advertisements for non-essential goods and services. She prohibited visitors at hospitals, nursing facilities, and jails. She shut down all veterinary facilities. Other than that, she encouraged people to live their lives as normally as possible. Ha ha. In short, says Governor, says Judge Napolitano, the governor of Michigan made up her own laws, reordered human life, displaced nearly all livelihoods, and trampled on civil liberties on a scale not seen in America since the Civil War. Although, he says, the governor's orders in New Jersey are a close second. The physicians who challenged Whitmer's executive orders argued that under the U.S. Constitution's Guarantee Clause, the states are required to have and employ a Republican, that's with a lower R, form of government. That means all state governments there must have three separate branches of government, a legislature that writes the laws, an executive that enforces them, and a judiciary that interprets them. This is known as separation of powers. Napolitano says when any governmental executive, a mayor, governor, or president, takes, receives, or exercises legislative power, that violates the separation of powers. A violation of the separation of powers, he says, ordinarily renders the, vo- the, the violating governmental behavior null and void. Putting, di- putting it differently, the court acted as a legislature. Yeah, rather, if the courts acted as a legislature, or if the governor acted as a court, or the legislature took command of the police, all acts done in those scenarios would be void. And he says, if this were not so, then nothing would prevent any one branch from relinquishing its powers to another or from seizing the powers of another branch. And the result would be a catastrophic loss of personal liberties. Now, just to put the arrogance of this governor into, uh, into context, Governor Whitmer called this argument novel. Judge Napolitano says it's not novel. It's a bedrock American constitutional law principle, just as James Madison intended. 
He says the governor also argued that in a state of emergency, she could assume the powers of the legislature in order to preserve human life. And she pointed to a 1945 Michigan statute that said she could do so for 28 days. Yet her orders went well beyond 28 days. The Michigan Supreme Court rejected the government's ar- the governor's arguments. rather. It ruled that any efforts by the legislative branch, no matter its motivations, to give away its powers and any efforts by the executive branch to take or exercise legislative powers violates the separation of powers. And the court reasoned that just as no branch of the government may exercise the powers of another branch, so too no branch of government may breach its own authority by relinquishing it to another branch. He says the separation of powers is both uniquely American and at the core of the freedom-protecting functions of our federal and state constitutions. The separation of powers doesn't exist to preserve the hegemony of each branch, but rather to assure that too much power doesn't accumulate in one branch, thereby threatening personal liberties. He says, regrettably, sometimes the courts look the other way when this happens because the outcome is politically desired. But the better courts, like Michigan's Supreme Court, nip it in the bud, lest we be ruled by dictators claiming to keep us safe. And he poses the question, how much longer will courageous courts keep our liberties safe? Well, like I say, I'm glad to see it happen in Michigan. I wish that there was uh, more of an impetus for that kind of thing going on in my home state of Utah. Because I think the governor has been way out of line and, and abused powers, again, in the name of protecting us. It's always for our protection. But he's dismantled essential liberties in the process, and that is, uh, that is a real problem. Now, I'm going to include in, uh, in my show notes today uh, a constitutional reckoning of state lockdown orders. This is an article by Ethan Yang, published from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's very good analysis, very detailed And he talks a little bit about how the Michigan Supreme Court struck down Governor Gretchen Whitmer's state of emergency and the powers it granted. Um, According to an article from NPR, in a 4-3 to majority opinion, the state's highest court said she did not have that authority. We conclude that the governor lacked the authority to declare a state of emergency or a state of disaster under the EMA after April 30th, 2020, on the basis of the COVID-19 pandemic. Furthermore, we conclude that EGP, EPGA is in violation of the Constitution of our state because it purports to delegate to the executive branch the legislative powers of state government, including its plenary police powers, and to allow the exercise of such powers indefinitely, wrote Justice Stephen J. Markman on behalf of the majority. End quote. Now, that's a pretty slim majority, 4-3. But at least, you know, you see Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who, as I understand it, when they invalidated her orders, the first thing she said was, well, I have 21 days to still uh, to still enforce these orders. And so I'm going to do so. Yeah, you don't think that that power has gone to her head, maybe just a little bit. Come on, she's been one of the most heavy handed executive figures during the pandemic. She's the one who went so far as to ban the selling of gardening supplies in stores that were still permitted to stay open. Why does it matter if a person is buying gardening supplies or they're buying, you know, vitamin C packets? As Ethan Yang points out, more importantly, this court ruling was not the first of its kind, but the third in a series of legal victories against lockdown orders. If you remember, the first was a Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling that declared parts of Governor Tony Evers' stay-at-home order unconstitutional. The second 
was by a federal court that struck down Governor Tom Wolf's policies in Pennsylvania. So the chickens are starting to come home to roost. Thankfully, there are some courts that are standing up for the proper role of government. Boy, it sure has been a long time coming, though. And it's really discouraging that, uh, that so much damage has been done in the meantime. I'll have the article in the show notes. I would encourage you, go to thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find the link there. Again, this is the article from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. Well worth your time to check out the constitutional reckoning of state lockdown orders. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for reveling in Wrong Think with me. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, can I suggest just go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com at the very bottom of the page. There's a nice little link there that says subscribe to the podcast. You'll also notice there is a link there that gives you an opportunity to become a donor. I'm not asking you to please, you know, send your life savings, but if you find value in the message and the articles that I share and the guests that I have, I would ask you to please consider becoming a supporter. Whether it's a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, I have a small but growing cadre of people who have stepped up and put their money where their mouth is. I so appreciate that. Look, I am a truly independent operator. I do this uh, not to build my fame and fortune, but because I really believe the message that I share. And if it's a message that, uh, again, you find value in, I would ask you, please consider, if possible, becoming a patron or a supporter. And I thank you in advance and thank those who are already doing this. So let me ask you a question here about uh, polling. I know that uh, there's a lot of focus being placed right now on the polls, ever, especially since the, the presidential debate a week ago. You know, well, now, you know, Joe Biden has lengthened to a 14 point, no, a 16 point lead in polls. And there's something vaguely reminiscent about this of 2016. Wasn't Hillary Clinton just killing it in the polls? Isn't that what all the polls were telling us? Oh, she's got this other 90% chance, you know, she's going to walk away the victor on election night. And while I did not vote for Trump in 2016, I will admit, I did find some satisfaction in watching those faces on the media who were so cocksure that, yeah, we got this thing, it's in the bag, and, and seeing them crash into the rocks of reality and begin to sink Mm, I probably took more satisfaction in it than I should have. But they were so sure we've got this all figured out. And they had told us so de- so definitively, there's no way he's never going to be elected until he was. So there's an article here from the American Spectator. Scott McKay is the author. Five quick things. The polls are the fundamentals. His advice is don't pack it in just yet. He says, this week's it's all the rage among legacy media types and even a few of the old-time conservative pundit class to screech about poll numbers and declare that President Trump's campaign is as sick as he supposedly was with COVID-19 over the weekend. And boy, they have the poll numbers to prove it, don't they? NBC has a poll with Joe Biden up by 14 points. Not to be outdone, CNN says the margin is 16. 
They're polling registered voters because they say this will be the highest turnout election in American history. And everybody's coming out to vote. Well, okay. He says Monday, former Red State editor Eric Erickson wrote that the poll numbers are sending Republican operatives into a panic. He said this is why, if you know where to look, panic is starting to set in with the Republicans. The public polling now is reflecting internal Republican polling from last week. Multiple campaign strategists and pollsters from states as diverse as Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, even South Carolina are starting to see the bottom falling out. Senior citizens, suburban women, and white men from up north are drifting to Biden. The president's debate performance excited a portion of his base, but alienated more. He has not grown his base nor done enough to offset it with Hispanic voters and black men. We are less than 30 days from the election. The president is battling COVID-19 and unable to campaign. His best hope is that Mike Pence has a stellar debate performance and hits the campaign trail in lieu of the president, end quote. Now, Scott McKay says this kind of talk seems to be everywhere. But he asks, is all of this real? And he says, here are five things to consider that might make you doubt those polls. Number one, nothing much has changed since 2016. All of those terrible polling numbers showing Trump getting murdered by Biden, they were just as bad in 2016. We don't, need, we don't really need to go back through all of the double-digit leads Hillary Clinton had on Trump and the alleged mathematical certainties of a Hillary win, and so on. Everybody knows the pollsters blew it then. What's different now? Anything? Scott McKay says not really, not fundamentally. There were shy Trump voters in 2016 that pollsters couldn't pick up. There are just as many now, probably more. If anything, the left has been more oppressive and fearsome in its attempts to shame and disparage Trump voters where it can. Deranged Democrats are recording themselves vandalizing Trump signs, some even on private property. Cars with Trump bumper stickers get keyed. People attack strangers for wearing MAGA hats. What we found out in 2016 is those tactics don't persuade people not to vote for Trump. Such tactics drive those votes underground and they resurface in the secrecy of the voting booth. There is no penalty for straight up lying to a pollster, at least not yet. In 2016, it was Hillary Clinton calling these voters deplorables. This year, it's Antifa beating them up in the streets. Do you not think Trump's voters are even more shy than they were before? One thing that has certainly changed since 2016, people get even more spam phone calls than ever before. And people answer the phone when strangers call even less than ever before. Which means polling is even more unreliable than ever before. Sure, maybe these polls are right. Of course, why would anybody believe a national poll of registered rather than likely voters less than a month before a presidential election is beyond me. He says, especially when the pollsters are defending such methodology as more reflective of the 2020 electorate. How in the hell do they know? But Scott McKay says, if they weren't right in 2016 and the electorate is pretty similar to what it was in 2016, why would you believe the polls at all? So that's number one. Number two, American culture is trending Trump's way, not Biden's. You're aware that there has been a massive run on guns and ammunition this year, right? Do you think the people buying those guns are Biden voters? Biden has been one of the foremost gun grabbers in American politics over the past half century. Why would people rush out to buy guns Biden wants to take away and then vote for Biden to take them? Then there's the massive departure of Americans' urban middle class to the suburbs and exurbs. Yes, there is the danger that those transplants, many of whom are vacating the deep blue states for the purple and red ones, might bring their politics with them. But he says that isn't, generally speaking, what has happened. 
Most expatriate Californians in Texas, for example, are Republicans. Some middle-class voters from places like New York might have been Democrats in the Big Apple simply because Republicans couldn't win where they lived. But move them to Orlando, and they might turn out to be set free politically. Look at voter registration in Florida so far this year. It's a blowout for the GOP. And then there's the get-woke-go-broke phenomenon. The NBA has just about bankrupted itself, driving away the bulk of its viewing audience with its disgusting BLM virtue signaling. Monday night, LeBron James, the league's biggest star, and yes, we've identified the NBA's biggest problem, walked off the court with time left on the clock in a finals game, and you barely even heard about it. Now think about what the country's reaction would have been if that had been Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or Dr. J or Michael Jordan. Now, nobody gives a damn. And the other ratings of major sports leagues like the Major League Baseball and the NFL have taken a similar, though perhaps not quite as thorough, bath. Then there's the death of the motion picture industry, which is losing its outlets as major theater chains are throwing in the towel. Now, the industry's been in swift decline for years. It's moribund now. How much influence have Democrats counted on from Hollywood celebrities in moving their message through the years? All but gone today. The public is clearly turning against the woke virtue signaling of American corporate culture. As Breitbart said, politics is downstream from culture. But in the last year, the left's destruction of so many of the institutions it controls has begun to result in the diminished influence of those destroyed institutions. Do you really think that gets reflected in a Joe Biden blowout victory? Number three, ground game advantage, Trump. Bigly. The voter registration numbers in Florida fly hard in the face of those poll numbers. Four years ago, there were 330,000 more registered Democrats than Republicans. Now, that gap is 183,000. In Pennsylvania, the Democrats' edge in registered voters has fallen off by just under 200,000, the majority of which has come this year. In North Carolina, Republican voter registration is up 3.5%, while Democrats have fallen off by more than 6% since the 2016 election. Scott McKay says it fails even the most basic test of logic to think that these swing state voters are switching from Democrat to Republican just so they can cross the aisle again and elect Biden president. Especially when the Trump campaign, undaunted by COVID-19, has engaged in a door-to-door knocking campaign the likes of which few campaigns have ever put forth. The campaign standard is a million knocks a week, a staggering number, and they hit the 100 million mark early last month. The Biden campaign just went in the field. They're scared of COVID. They said so. Oh, and those mail-in ballots you're so afraid of, not to say you have nothing to worry about, because mail-in balloting is clearly corruption of the process. But so far in swing states like Ohio, Nevada, Michigan, and Wisconsin, the numbers on those mail-in ballots have things more or less at 50-50 by party registration. Nationally, Democrats have a sizable advantage. But who cares if they blow things out in Washington and California? Biden has openly declared Trump and his campaign are irresponsible for holding campaign rallies with thousands of people in tow. While Biden has awkward, almost comic events, forcing small numbers of select people to stand or sit spread out in spray-painted circles. Which one of these campaigns look like they'll be successful in getting their vote out? Okay, so that's three of the five things to consider from Scott McKay. We'll come back and touch on the other two, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you or someone you know is looking to refinance your existing home mortgage, maybe you're home shopping and looking to get pre-qualified and need to get a new home loan, talk to my friend John Staples or his lovely wife Heather, the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are the ones who can help you out 23 states strong. So there's a good chance, whatever state you are, you're hearing this message in, you are, you are likely within their, uh, their reach and their ability to help you. Go to staplesmortgage.com. That's staplesmortgage.com. When you talk to them, please mention, I'm here because Brian said you're the guy to talk to. They'll appreciate knowing that their advertising message reached your ears. So I'm sharing this article from Scott McKay. Five quick things, the polls or fundamentals. And I have to say, for a guy who doesn't get very excited about politics, um, I'm still not excited, but I, I think he's making a lot of sense here. All these polls, well, you know, Biden has such a great lead. It's a blowout. The answers that Scott McKay is giving, I think, make a lot of sense. And especially when you look back at 2016 and how sure everybody was that Hillary had that thing sewed up. Not so. So who knows? All I'm saying is there, there appear to be some pretty good reasons to doubt. Reason number four, Scott McKay asks, what is Biden selling anyway? He says, in the media age, there has never been a candidate who won a presidential election without a message that captured the public's attention. Trump won in 2016 on Make America Great Again. Barack Obama sold hope and change. George W. Bush offered compassionate conservatism. Bill Clinton was a new Democrat. George H.W. Bush pitched a kinder, gentler America. Ronald Reagan asked if voters were better off after four years of Jimmy Carter in 1980 and then asked the same question of his own presidency in 1984. Joe Biden is selling what? Wear your mask? For a while, he was selling riots, and then he was blaming those on Trump. He was for a mask mandate, then he wasn't, then he was. Biden's messaging, when he bothers to offer any at all, half the time he just decides not to campaign and calls a lid on any activity. In other words, it's an abject mess. He won't answer basic questions to fundamental issues like packing the Supreme Court or his son Hunter's crooked dealings with foreign bad guys. He criticizes Trump's COVID response and then offers a plan that is identical to what Trump has already done, much of which he criticized at the time. Yes, there are polls showing Trump's debate performance was a negative. There are also polls showing the opposite. Biden didn't have a single soundbite from that debate he could use to any good effect. Trump stomped, over every, tr stomped all over every single one. Was it obnoxious? Sure. So what? Biden interrupted Trump as well, and frankly, he was a lot nastier. Trump never called him a clown or told him to shut up. And does anybody expect the remaining debates, assuming there are any, to go any better for Biden? Scott McKay says he's a manifestly bad candidate with a manifestly vacant message. The closest thing to this that has won a presidential election in the past century would be Jimmy Carter in 1976. But Carter at least was seen as a good guy and a political outsider. Nobody thinks that of Biden. And Carter rode a Democrat post-Watergate wave. Trump's approval rating is pretty similar to Obama's in 2012 when the latter was re-elected. Where are the fundamentals to support a Biden victory? Okay, number five, he says, he who has more fun wins. Here's perhaps the most important factor. Campaigns are few and far between that can win elections without being the more fun side to be on. 
What's fun about Joe Biden? What's fun about a COVID Karen candidate who won't do real campaign events, who needs a teleprompter for softball TV interviews, who makes creepy and racist statements like the one a couple of days ago about how he was able to sequester at home because of some black woman stocking the grocery store shelves, or the one where he suggested he wanted to see a few prepubescent girls dancing in about four years? What about what's fun about a campaign that doesn't even show up half the time? Trump supporters are doing boat parades with hundreds or even thousands of vessels forming armadas on rivers and lakes. They're loading up the Internet with funny memes. They're wearing out state legislators, demanding they open up their local economies. They're beating local school districts up to get high school football players back on the fields. They're clearly the most engaged citizens in the country, and they're gaining energy rather than losing it as the election gets closer. What are Biden's people doing? Rioting? Now, those rioters aren't Biden's people, you know. They're nobody's people. They're not even Bernie Sanders' people. What they want doesn't exist in America's legitimate political process. To the extent they're for Biden, it's because they think they can overthrow him. Think it's any fun to vote for a demented Alexander Kerensky? But hey, those polls say what they say. If you want to believe them rather than what you see going on around the country, he says, knock yourself out. We'll soon enough know who's right. This is from Scott McKay. That's that's pretty in your face, but again, I don't I don't see I don't see any way that uh, this is that he's wrong in what he's pointing out here. These are some points well worth considering. I'm not saying, boy, you better hang your hat on it. This is this is the way it is. He just makes a pretty good argument, and I'll leave it at that. Right, couple other quick ones here. I'll just touch on them briefly. Um, have you noticed how the pandemic has killed? Any meaningful discussion of alternate ways to handle the crisis. I have made no qualms about uh, you know the fact that I'm I'm very interested in this uh, this declaration that was done uh, by participants at the conference held by the American Institute for Economic Research just uh, just a short uh, well just earlier uh, over the weekend. In fact, I actually signed the petition, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? You know, when you have doctors like Dr. Scott Atlas step up and offer a counterpoint to what Dr. Anthony Fauci has been telling us, immediately there's like this piling on. Well, you know, you can't, you can't possibly consider what he has to say. And there's this terrific article by Stacey Rudin about how the pandemic has killed debate. She starts with a quote from Carl Sagan, who famously said, The cure for a fallacious argument is a better argument not the suppression of ideas. What we are seeing, though, is a suppression of ideas. And she gives a nice list of, you know, how going back to uh, Sweden's chief epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell, accused of leading Sweden to catastrophe and experimenting on the, on the uh, Swedish people, uh, Dr. Sinetra, or Professor Sinetra Gupta, one of the world's foremost epidemiologists at University of Oxford, and by the way, one of the signatories to this declaration, that was just signed in the last week. Then you've got uh, the latest smear tar- target, neuroradiologist and health policy, policy expert, Dr. Scott Atlas, formerly of Stanford. Now, he is a longtime lockdown dissenter, but he has agreed to serve on the White House Corona Task Force, although Dr. Anthony Fauci, a researcher who funds grants and is not a public health expert, is, is permitted to do so with no adverse media coverage. And she talks about some of the the different uh, attacks that are being levied against these medical professionals who are offering a differing point of view or at least offering a different approach 
to how the pandemic might have been handled. Her point is, experts differ and disagree on every subject. And intelligent people coming from various backgrounds, with all manner of life and professional experience, they're going to choose their own side. And once this goes on for long enough, the correct result will arrive. We'll know who was right. Neither public policy or science is ever completely settled, so restricting debate hurts everyone. The voicing of innovative ideas and solutions, says Stacy Rudin, is what helps us. We should be celebrating people like Scott Atlas who are willing to take an unpopular minority view. Maybe we can learn something from them. And she says we should pay careful attention once we know that their opponents will not only sling mud, but won't even appear for a debate. Great, great article again. Find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Last but not least, an excellent essay from Brad Palumbo. This was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is about minimum wage, and I know there are a lot of people who really firmly believe, oh, if we could just get the minimum wage up to 15 bucks an hour, why we would solve so many people's problems. Well, guess what? The Swiss city of Geneva just voted for a world record $25 an hour minimum wage. That translates to about $4,100 a month for a minimum wage job. And Brad does a marvelous job of showing how minimum minimum wage laws cannot work. Evidence and experts agree minimum wage hikes don't work. And there's just no limiting principle to minimum wage advocates' logic. He says, until the public wises up to the counterproductive realities of minimum wage hikes, the flawed policies will continue to advance in politics despite mountains of economic evidence screaming out for the opposite approach. He's got a lot of details, a lot of charts, graphs, and numbers to back it up. It's well worth your time. I would encourage you, take a look at his article. Again, you will find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's Brad Palumbo writing about uh, Swiss city of Geneva voting for a world record $25 an hour minimum wage. Actually, it was probably in euros, but you get the point. Hey, thanks again for joining us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.